motives and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. George Bush doesn't care about black people. History Month, but we don't have a white history month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right wing, ultra conservative, alt right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough, and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now, I know I'm simply a strong black woman. We're in a time where corporations are treated like people and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean-spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. What is bad is not what they are doing. What would be bad is for us not to fight back. Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM, and you are listening to Resistance Radio. And once again, we are broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel in the Three Keys room in front of a live audience. Give it up, y'all. We have an active audience here because we really have... A very, very special, uh, uh, we have a very, very special guest uh, today uh, on uh, Resistance Radio, and it really is a pleasure to introduce uh, Mr. Howie Hawkins. Uh, Howie became active in the movement for civil rights against the war in Vietnam in the 1960s as a teenager in the San Francisco Bay Area. Repelled by racism and warmongering he saw in both parties, he asked, where is my party? And in fact, I ask that question all the time, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, from the start, he was committed to an independent working class politics uh, for a democratic, socialist, and ecological society. And with that, Mr. Hawkins helped co-found the Green Party in 1984. He's the author of what is now colloquially known as the Green New Deal and first introduced the Green New Deal when he was running for governor in New York State in 2010. He has run for the New York State gubernatorial race three times. He has run three separate campaigns in the city of Syracuse. He has run for the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate one time each, and now he is running for the presidency in 2020. His campaign's goals include building a Green, new, a green Party as an activist and viable opposition to the two capitalistic party and to put an eco-socialist program for real political and economic dem democracy, civil liberties, social justice, ecology sustain sustainability. I don't know why I'm having a hard time. 
today. And peace on to the public agenda. So please, y'all, give Mr. Howie Hawkins a warm New Orleans applause. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And I know that uh, we, we, you, you literally just kind of ran in, right? Yeah, we drove down here from Nashville, and uh, the map app was a little off. <laughs> and then it told us to turn left when we should have turned right, so I had to walk the last few blocks, but oh, I'm boy. here. Well, thank you so much. I know uh, I, I was told that you were at the uh, Socialist Party this weekend. Yes, I received their nomination. That's the party of Eugene Debs, Norman Thomas, A. Philip Randolph, a great tradition. And uh, I joined it when it, you know, the old part, uh, Socialist Party of America split through ways over Vietnam. And this was the anti-war branch. Uh, and the branch that was for independent working class political action. Uh, the other two factions went into the Democratic Party. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, socialism become a topic of discussion. It used to be a conversation stopper. Last few years it's become a conversation starter. And so this uh, Socialist Party USA is not a big organization, but it carries a great tradition. And you know, 100 years ago, Eugene B. Debs was in prison for opposing World War I and making a speech against it. And from prison, he got 913,000 votes. Yes. We believe we can get a million votes for socialism in this election and basically bring that tradition back. And so that's one of our objectives. So, you know, I've been a Green, um, the Green Party's got battle lines over the country, but I think this is important symbolically for uh, where we need to go. Well, I think that's great, and congratulations on that. And I, that actually segues perfectly into the first question I have here. Um, you know, as I prep for this interview, I've, I've listened to a number of your interviews and read through your platform pretty thoroughly. And I wanted to start with the obvious question of the duopoly of political parties and our broken political system. This December 1st marks five years that WHIV has been on air. And at that time, former Senator Mary Landrieu was running against then-Representative Bill Cassidy for a runoff on December 5th. And I mention this because I remember being very frustrated at our choices. Representative Cassidy had passed the bill for the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, and Senator Landrieu did the same thing in the Senate. And I kept going on air asking the same thing that you did, which is, where is my party? Where was the party for environment? You had a Republican on one side doing one thing, a Democrat doing another. There was no change. Uh, there was no choice uh, for the Keystone XL pipeline, and I didn't vote for that election. Chris Hedges speaks very eloquently about the necessity for more political parties, if anything, just to help fight the corruption in our body politic. So can you walk us through your journey of supporting, first supporting the Peace and Freedom Party, the People's Party, the Citizens Party, and then ultimately helping to create the Green Party, all the while avoiding the trappings of being in, uh, a Democrat or a Republican? Well, it happened to me when I was 12 years old. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. Ronald Reagan is leading a campaign by the Republican Party to repeal the Rumford Fair Housing Law, which had just passed. And I'm coming up in a Midwestern Republican family that, you know, from Chicago, Indiana, they had moved out to the Bay Area. And they told me coming up, the Republican Party stood for civil rights, the party of Lincoln. Uh, and they supported civil rights, fiscal responsibility, and stay out of stupid foreign wars, and otherwise leave us the hell alone. That was basically the political philosophy. And obviously, the Republicans weren't for civil rights, at least in California. So. The Democratic Party, which had the Southern Dixiecrats, the racists, but they had a choice with the Mississippi delegation, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee primarily organized, or the old Dixiecrats, the segregationists. And Johnson sent these liberals, Humphrey, Mondale, 
Joseph Rao to tell the Freedom Democrats you get two honorary seats. You can walk around, but you can't vote. And Fannie Lou Hamer famously convinced the delegation we're not accepting that because we didn't do all this work to come here and be told to wait. So, you know, I'm 12 years old saying, where's my party? And uh, my party became the Peace and Freedom Party because after the failure on civil rights, both parties escalated in Vietnam. So by the time we're getting to 68, I'm worried about getting drafted for this war. So I now 15, 16, I'm telling adults register into this party so you can vote against the war. And uh, they'd say, son, what are you worried about? You know, you're only, you know, 15, 16. I said, I don't want to be drafted for this party. They say it'll be over by the time you're old enough. But I got drafted, you know. So uh, you went I think the I, Marines, right? Yeah. Well, my, my number came up. I then enlisted in the Marines, which had an off-campus. I was in college, off-campus officer training program. And that's a whole other story. But, um, you know, and so we can go through the decades. But here we are today, you know. Majority of people want uh, Medicare for all. Polls show that. It's been true since Truman. Democrats are not going to get there for us. They already, which is a watered-down version of what the Green Party's signature issue has been for the last decade. I ran on it in 2010. Our presidential candidate ran on it, Jill Stein, in 2012, 2016. Candidates up and down the ticket have run on it. Gets, the Democrats get it, they take the brand and dilute the content. So this non-binding resolution before Congress from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the House and Ed Markey in the Senate, they extended the deadline to get to zero greenhouse gas emissions and 100% clean energy from 2030 to 2050. That's too late, according to the climate science. They dropped the demand for an immediate ban on fracking the new fossil fuel infrastructure. We build new fossil fuel infrastructure and the investors want three, four, five decades of returns on their investment going to cook the planet. Uh, we want to phase out nuclear power. They don't talk about that. We want to cut military budget and put it into the uh, clean energy. They don't talk about that. And even with it being watered down, Pelosi won't let the House vote on it. And wily old leader McConnell said, oh, half you Democrats are running for president. We'll put you on the record. And Schumer says, this is a trick, and tells all the senators to vote president. And the good little Democratic senators all voted president. So four of them voted against it with the Republicans. So the leadership of the Democratic Party is against the Green New Deal, except it won't die. So every Democratic president's got to have a Green New Deal because it's popular. After the Sunrise Movement with AOC sat in outside Pelosi's office, they did a poll, 80% of the people, including 64% of Republicans, want a Green New Deal. They know we got a climate crisis, but the Democrats are not going to deliver. So, you know, my whole political life, I've watched the Democrats give lip service to progressive things. But once after the election, they answer to their donors, not the voters. And that's the problem of American politics. What the people want doesn't get translated into public policy. And that's why we need the Green Party. And so how did you come around uh, finding the or co-founding the Green Party? Well, I was uh, one of the co-founders of the Clamshell Alliance. We did mass occupations of a nuclear power plant site in New Hampshire where they were going to build two nukes at Seabrook on the coast. And... Uh, that got a lot of attention, and so when uh, they were organizing the first organizing meeting to form a Green Party, they wanted to clamshell and I sent a couple people. So I was one of the two people, and I got to that first meeting in uh, August 1984 in St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, been active ever since. Now, what inspired me was the fact that the German Greens had got like 35 people elected to their Congress called the Bundestag, and it was a new politics. Uh, the old left had kind of stagnated, 
And these people were talking about new issues, ecology, feminism, perhaps what's democracy, you know, institutions at the base of society where people can participate, not just better election systems for representative democracy, you know, and ending the uh, nuclear arms race. So these were major issues that needed to be addressed and the Greens seemed to be on the cutting edge. So when they elected those 35 to the Bundestag, it wasn't just in the United States, you know, progressives, lefties all over the world said, we got to do that here. So Green parties just popped up all over the world after that. And, you know, I happened to be there, you know, at the right place at the right time to be part of starting one here. So while we were talking about the Green New Deal, and I, I was going to ask you sometime later uh, here, but while we're still talking about it, uh, I, I think that uh, you first introduced it in 2010 when you were running uh, as w in one of your gubernatorial races. Yeah, we're coming out of the Great Recession, the collapse of housing and, and financial markets. And so how do we get the economy going again? And I'm running against Andrew Cuomo, the Democrat, who says, I'm the real Tea Party candidate. His program was austerity. They were going to cut funding for schools. They were going to cut public employment. They weren't going to tax the rich. And there was an even, we call him crazy Carl Palladino, who is a real estate developer like Donald Trump. But he makes Donald Trump look like a mild-mannered liberal. This guy is really nasty. He was the one that was sending, like, Species in, in envelopes, wasn't he? Like he That sounds do, like him. I don't remember yeah, that. But I remember that story. He, he, he would send around racist jokes around an email. Um, he, he had a problem with one of the, the most prominent conservative radio hosts in the state and was pounding his chest, you know, in front of everybody else. That guy broadcast. He's talking about he'd take a baseball bat to knock sense into the legislature. Very violent language. So I'm running against these two right-wing austerians. So it was the Hawkins Prosperity Plan versus the Cuomo Austerity Plan. And that was our Green New Deal, which was we're going to uh, increase public spending on things like education, health care, the people's needs, but also put a big public investment in clean energy to stimulate the economy and get it going. So that's why we thought the Green New Deal was appropriate. The European Greens had already been doing it. They appropriated the term Green, I mean, New Deal, from you know the activist government we had in the 30s here. So it was first the Green Party of England and Wales had a Green New Deal, and then the European Greens uh, continent-wide ran on the theme of a Green New Deal for Europe in 2009. So I said, we should do that here. It took a minute to explain to the Greens, because they said, New Deal, oh, that's the Democratic Party, that's old hat. I said, yeah, but the Democratic voters think that's what the Democrats stand for or should stand for, and they haven't caught on yet that the New Deal Democrats are long gone, and now all we got is corporate New Democrats. So it was a good appeal to those voters, and it caught attention. I got a lot of, uh, we didn't have a ballot line at that time, but I got major interviews with the weeklies around the state. Um, there's a thing called New Deal 2.0, which was an intellectual kind of thing, online publication. The author now of that article is a regular writer for The Nation magazine. So we got a lot of attention. And uh, in fact, we started campaigning on it in the spring, and by the summer, uh, Greens around the country had picked up on it. We had 62 Greens sign up federal Green New Deal proposal uh, across, the, across the country. So that's how the Green Party picked this up and, you know, been running with it for a decade. And we're happy that it's getting all this attention now, but we're pointing out that it's been watered down and, you know, we got a real Green New Deal that's adequate to the task. And also, just to kind of remind folks, the, 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 the New Deal Democrats, including the uh, president who passed the New Deal, was so popular that he had four terms as president. They had to write a, an amendment to limit the presidency to two terms based on, just based on what the New Deal did and how it stimulated the economy. Oh, I think people... Plus Medicare and Social Security and all that. Well, 
you know, we've had sort of two philosophies. And actually, this was new because the traditional philosophy, you know, like uh, the guy who had been uh, governor of New York and wanted and lost to uh, FDR, Al, um, I'm forgetting his name, but both the Democrats and Republicans were like, government should stay out of the economy. And we're in a depression. And FDR was experimenting. He didn't quite know what to do, but the people just appreciated that he was trying. And there were some programs that were pretty good, like the public employment programs, put people back to work. We built, you know, public infrastructure, had arts projects, a lot of that stuff we still use today, whether it's post public offices parks. or parks. And that was, you know, we haven't had a building program like that for public purposes since. So it was very popular. And, uh, you know, so I think the people want government, it, it, you know, the, the, the debate way it gets framed by the commercial media, big government versus small government. No, people want good government. They don't care as big or small as long as it gets the job done. That's the issue. And I think people just appreciated that FDR was, you know, trying to do good government. I always said that, you know, a jobs program is so important. The uh, only jobs program that we have in the U.S. is the military, which helps to finance our, our war economy. But that being said, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. You are listening to Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary. And it's such a pleasure and honor to have on a green candidate, uh, salute, uh, Mr. Howie Hawkins, uh, who is running for the presidency of the U.S. And I, in fact, I'm actually obligated to say that if there's anybody else that's running for president, so uh, any of the uh, candidates that are interested in appearing on WHIV, of course, I have to give you equal time. Uh, and, uh, and so it would be a pleasure to interview other folks as well. So if we could just shift over into campaign finance reform and just love to hear some of your thoughts about that. The fact uh, that 45% of Americans choose not to vote during a presidential election is likely due to the fact that they feel as though the system does not work for them. And I largely believe that they are correct. Our system is one that allows for the legalization of corruption through bribes called campaign donations. First came corporate personhood uh, in the late 1800s, and then uh, came Buckley versus Vallejo, which upheld limits on campaign contributions, but held that spending money to influence elections is protected by the First Amendment. So this is the time that you start to see a successful war on labor unions, and that resulted ultimately in the decimation of the middle class. Add to that the extraordinary tax cuts that, that were allowed uh, by the 1%. It is clear that our democracy is not one that represents the people, which you were saying a moment ago. Your, your platform includes the creation of a federal law for the fair ballot access, and I would love to hear more about that, but could you also comment on some of the movements that we're seeing for campaigns finance reform? to deal with the fair ballot access we're opposed to party suppression we think that's part of voter suppression yes agreed 100 as you indicated almost half the people even in these higher turnouts in the last few presidential elections don't vote and i you know people say oh they're apathetic no they're alienated they don't you know we had the two most unpopular candidates running for president in american history trump was the most unpopular but hillary was a close second and people stayed home they didn't like either one of them um so we need that fair ballot access so there are more opportunities. This country's off the charts. You want to run for the House of Commons, which is the Congress in the United Kingdom, you need 10 signatures. In most states in this country, a third party or independent candidate needs 15, 20,000 signatures in a district in a short period of time. It's designed to keep alternatives off the ballot. So that's what we're talking about. We should have one federal standard you know, a reasonable standard so we, we can eliminate totally frivolous candidates and, 
And once you've demonstrated that you're serious, you should be on the ballot and let the voters decide, not some bureaucratic process designed by the two parties to keep out competition. As far as public campaign finance goes, you pointed to the legal and court decision history. I'm for a thing we call it the We the People Amendment that would define money as property, not speech, and corporations as artificial entities, not human beings with natural rights. And uh, this amendment would overrule the decisions you referred to, the court personhood decision, uh, the Buckley v. Vallejo decision, which says money is speech, and, uh, and enable us to regulate the financing of our elections, which are public institutions, public functions, should be publicly financed. Otherwise, the whole election's being bought by the rich special interests. And then you end up with a two-party system where the rich control both parties. You know, Goldman Sachs gives the Democrats and Republicans. Bill Gates gives the Democrats and Republicans. The establishment, they want to give us the illusion of choice. And in the end, no matter who wins, they win because they already bought those politicians. we got to change that system. So we need public campaign financing. We need the, this We the People Amendment to be adopted. And we need fair ballot access. So, and then... Uh the, the, while we're talking about campaign financing, how are you financing your campaign? Uh, small donations. Uh, there is a post-Watergate reform called the Federal Primary Matching Fund System. I think I'm the only damn presidential candidate in the whole country using it. Because if you accept, you've got to limit your primary spending to $50 million. And all the Democrats say, oh, that ain't enough for me. So they don't even try to get the matching fund system. And, and Donald Trump's already passed it. So. What it is is if we get uh, contributions of $5,000 from people in contributions of $250 or less, in 20 states we qualify. And then every dollar contributed up to $250 is matched by Uncle Sam. So basically we double our money for everybody who contributes up to $250. Uh, we've used this. Ralph Nader got into it. Bill Stein got into it. We're trying to get into it by the end of this year. So. January 1st, when the program starts, we start getting checks, which will help us get over these high ballot access burdens and, uh, you know, do all the other things you got to do to run a real serious campaign. And when you say high, bio, high ballot access, what is that? Is, are these states that put up uh, uh, obstacles that make it difficult for a candidate like yourself to get onto a ballot? Yeah, we need to get the Greens already have 21 of the 51 ballots, 51 counting the District of Columbia. Um, so to get the signatures for the other 30, we need about 800,000 good signatures, which really means about double that, say one and a half million. Per state? And, no. Oh, total. Nationwide. It, it varies from 800 in uh, New Jersey to, wow, I see, I you see know, what saying, 30, 40, 50,000. We're on Texas because of the law that passed, but we would have had to get over 70,000 there. Um, Every state's got its own requirements, and most of them are designed to make it hard. Uh, so you total them all up. It's 800000 because they'll challenge you. You need to double that. At a dollar a signature, that's about a million and a half dollars, and that is about half the going rate. But we have a lot of volunteers. So, you know, we need to raise, you know, one and a half, two, three million dollars just to get on all 50 uh, state ballots because uh, in the end we got to pay some people to go out there and get all these signatures. So it's, uh, it's a big burden. So instead of campaigning and debating the Democrats and Republicans, we're out here just trying to get on the ballot. 
And they set it up that way so they don't have competition. That's exactly right. And they also are, I'm going to assume, being excluding you from the debate stages uh, as well as we've seen in the past. Yeah, the League of Women Voters used to do it. And <laughs> in New York State, I've run for U.S. Senate against Hillary Clinton for governor three times. And every time the League of Women Voters has looked at my campaign and said, this is a serious campaign. I'm raising serious issues. I'm out there talking to the voters. I got a good website. I'm getting covered in the media. Include them in the debates. And then usually the front runner, Clinton in that first race, Andrew Cuomo in the next three, would, was got to call the shots because the commercial media is saying, well, we need the superstar there, you know, to get eyeballs on it so then we can sell advertising instead of letting a civic organization like the League of Women Voters do it. And now the League has organized debates, but the media won't cover them. So at the presidential level, after Perot, you know, kind of broke up the party there in 1992, they just muscled aside the League of Women Voters and formed what they called the Commission on Presidential Debates. Sounds like a government agency. Sounds fair and square and on the level. It's not. It's jointly owned by the Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> Former chairs of the two parties are the board of the this thing. And they define it so only Democrats and Republicans get in the debate. And our, uh, you know, commercial media, the big networks, the cable news, they supinely follow this commission. They are stenographers, not reporters. The media organizations, the civic organizations should define the debate, should be in it. Instead, they are following the lead of the two major parties. And it's, it's a shame. And we need to shame them for it. And, you know, when we get further down the campaign, we're going to be calling very publicly for the commercial media and the civic organizations to take back the debates for the people from the two parties that exclude everybody else. So that leads perfectly right into our next uh, topic here, which is independent media. But before we do that, let me do a quick station ID. If you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. My name is Mark Allendary, and I'm your host. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have with us today Mr. Uh, Howie Hawkins, who is running... Uh, 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 who's running in the primary in the, on the green ticket for the presidency for 2020. So at WHIV, we say that we can't have a political revolution without a media revolution. The Green Party candidate for 2012 and 2016 was Dr. Jill Stein. And one of the smears that still sticks with Dr. Stein is that she's a vaccine denier. Despite her repeatedly stating that she is not, and as an internist and primary care physician, she routinely, routinely vaccinates her patients as recommended by various medical boards. But it's obvious what was happening, and the same thing with the so-called RT scandal uh, as well. It's obvious that they are uh, doing the, uh, it's obvious what they are doing. The media is run by large national and multinational corporations that profit from the system as it exists today. And all those campaign donations that corrupt politicians get that money is ultimately funneled into media agencies in the form of advertisements. And, of course, I have never seen a national news broadcast sponsored by, say, your old colleagues, the Teamsters, right? They're almost always sponsored by Raytheon or Lockheed Martin. So can you talk about how a President Hawkins administration will help to create an honest media? Well, we would introduce legislation, proposed legislation, for Congress to take up to establish uh, some of the controls we used to have until the Telecommunications Act of the mid-90s under the Clinton administration, which removed most of the barriers to monopolization, cross-ownership within each media market. So like now, you go to a lot of cities, all the talk radio is, radio is uh, clear channels. It's all right-wing talk radio 24-7. Uh, the independent black stations, like I grew up on KDIA and KSOL in the San Francisco Bay Area, they are long gone. You know, the call letters are still there, but they're owned by corporate conglomerates. 
And they're not black-oriented, not community-oriented like those stations were. Like the Peace and Freedom Party. I mean, this was before, you know, there was more regulation. But I remember on KDIA, the DJs would say, get out there and find that Peace and Freedom petition. Because it was a coalition between the Black Panther Party, which was based in Oakland, and the based in the independent socialists that uh, were anti-war and, and aligned with the Panthers. And they put this Peace and Freedom Party together. The DJs were pushing it. You know, and this was community radio. It was small commercial radio. So we need to, you can't own more than one station in one market. You can't own the station and the newspaper and the TV station. You break that all up so we have lots of independent broadcasters. Then given the social media, which is, tends to be free and they, you know, sell advertising and people are, you know, people who are advertising tend to buy that now rather than print media because they think it works better. So the print media is in real trouble. So we need to do like they did when the founding fathers had lower postal rates for newspapers and pamphlets. We need to subsidize an independent public media so that it's not state media propaganda, but it's you have local boards, uh, you know, with a commitment. So basically, you might just allocate the funds in proportion to the number of subscribers these publications have. So, you know, from far left to far right, everybody gets their fair share, but they they have some money so they can actually operate. Those are the kinds of, you know, uh, alternatives we need to think about. Because right now, we have six big media corporations, from news to entertainment to books to radio. You know, they cover the whole spectrum. And uh, they are big businesses, and they look after big business interests. So that's the kind of media reform we need. Have, were you following, uh, I'll add one more to your list in that social media, especially Facebook, and did you follow the story uh, uh, last week when uh, the CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, was uh, in front of con testifying in front of Congress? Because crazy enough, and I we don't need to get into this unless you want to, because I know you have some thoughts about the big banks, how they want to create their own uh, currency, cryptocurrency, which is, again, crazy to even think about it. But one of the things uh, that we have seen recently is that uh, um, that the that, uh, President Trump uh, is now posting advertisements on Facebook that are clear lies, and Facebook just has no interest in taking them down. And uh, uh, Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez challenged uh, Mr. Zuckerberg uh, by asking him that if she uh, created an ad on Facebook that showed that one of the Republican uh, senators, let's say, supported the Green New Deal, would they take that down? And I, didn't, I don't know if you saw him stumble and fumble his way through it, but two days later, a political action group actually came up with an ad that showed that Senator Lindsey Graham um, actually signed on to and Green New Deal, and it was up for about a, about a day and a half before Facebook still have all these other lies that are that are still there so there, there seems to be a huge media bias uh, against uh, progressives or liberals yeah I hear Zuckerberg's been uh, meeting with uh, conservatives but not liberals in the mainstream political spectrum so he's got his biases um, I'm not sure about the cryptocurrency I'm, I haven't studied that I'm not ready to say anything about that but uh, I think we have to look at these media platforms these networks which tend to monopolize Everybody wants to be on Facebook because everybody's on Facebook. You know, that's where everybody is and how you can hook up. Everybody wants to be on Amazon because there are more products there. There's more reviews there. And, and so when these networks are out there, one of them tends to go to the top and it becomes a natural monopoly. Uh, should that be a for-profit inter for enterprise, which really concentrates wealth? I mean, Bezos is, is he the richest guy in the world now? Or richest or second richest. Yeah. Um, Zuckerberg is chasing him. 
Um, so it's, you know, really concentrating wealth, but, but more importantly, it's concentrating power. And so these platforms are in the hands of a few people. Maybe they should be public enterprises because they're natural monopolies. That's one of the justifications we've always had for public enterprises, like municipal power utilities. I think we need to look at that. Um, this is, on the other hand, I am sympathetic that you don't want, you know, Zuckerberg or his algorithms deciding, you know, which lies pass muster. Uh, so there's a problem of censorship. Do you, know who, do you know who's doing it for Zuckerberg? It, one of the folks that are doing it are the Daily Caller. And I'm not sure if you're, I hope you don't know the Daily Caller. Uh, yeah. You're, you're lucky if you don't. <laughs> it's a conservative publication. Yeah. I would go as far as say it's white nationalist or racist uh, publication as well. Uh, run by Tucker Carlson, who, who actually started oh, that. Tucker right, Carlson right? is a piece of work. Yeah, he is so, a racist. And, and, and that is who is helping to help uh, define what is considered uh, fake, so-called fake news on Facebook or not. Yeah. Those are their fact checkers. Yeah. No, social media is a huge issue, and we need to have, you know, a uh, real discussion about the alternatives. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren has said, break up the platform so, you know, uh, Google and Facebook and Amazon don't all own all of these different platforms. Uh, that might be part of the solution, but I also think some of them are naturally going to just be a monopoly, and maybe they should be, you know, publicly regulated uh, or publicly owned and regulated rather than uh, privately owned and publicly regulated. Because when you have a big monopoly like that, the regulated tend to take over the regulators and, and capture the government yeah, you're for right. their own benefit. Yeah, no, no, that's true. You know, I've often said uh, one of the reasons why I started WHIV, WHIV is that we always hear that uh, there's the liberal the liberal bias, the liberal media, the liberal media, the liberal media, and I've never actually seen the liberal media, so I wanted to create something that they could actually point to now when they talk about the liberal media. So WHIV is, uh, is that's what we usually uh, joke about. But um, I know that you have, uh, uh, you have talked about the uh, uh, banks, and, uh, and certainly when we're talking about public utilities, this, just this morning I read that Governor uh, Newsom in California was, and I can't remember who he was reaching out to, did you see that? Who he was, he was reaching out to somebody to buy PG&E to take over. What does PG&E stand for? That's a Pacific, Pacific Gas, Gas and Electric. And electric. Now they're having yeah. these rolling blackouts. Rather than turning it over to the state or turning it over to the governor, you know, Governor Newsom, for whom I'm fairly uh, in support of, I think that he's done some very good work in the past. But to to turn it over to a private, uh, another private entity, just to me, just seems ridiculous. So I wanted to hear some of your thoughts about about that. Um. You said Newsom wants to turn it over to a new private, to a enterprise, new private enterprise rather than a public enterprise. Well, I think we need a public energy system from top to bottom. You know, the Koch brothers and Exxon and Chevron are not going to take their profits from fossil fuels and invest them in renewables. They will cook the planet until we're all cooked, but they are very rich. But what are they going to do with that money? Um, so we need to take them over. We need to take over the utilities like PG&E which, uh, you know, the reason there are fires is they haven't maintained the lanes where these high power lines go. So if the wind snaps a line, it, the brush catches fire. Um, they cannot be trusted. They have resisted uh, the transition to renewables are distributed. The, the sun shines, the wind blows all over the place. You don't have central power, you have dispersed generation. You need a smart grid to handle that. They don't want to make that investment. So we got to take over the utilities and run a uh, democratic public energy system, democratic from the bottom up. 
federated local public energy districts, state coordination, and federal coordination. Um, and so, you know, Bernie Sanders, when he finally came up with his Green New Deal, and he, he says that when his socialism doesn't involve public ownership, but then he realized, or his policy people did, if you're going to make this transition to clean energy, you've got to do it through the public system, which we've been saying all along. I mean, our Green New Deal not only wants public ownership in the energy sector, we want to take over the railroads. We need to build bullet trains, high-speed rails between the cities. We need to electrify freight rails and get a lot of the freight off the trucks on the highways and onto rails. And then you have electric trucks and vehicles for the last leg. And then we got to re rebuild the trolley systems, the light rails that we had in every damn city in this country between, you know, the 1890s and 1930. It's not rocket science. I mean, my city of Syracuse, I have a map from 1903 with the trolleys. Every home was within two blocks of a trolley and they ran every 15 minutes. You get around the city easier in 1903 than you can in uh, 2019. And I've been all over this country in this campaign and I can't believe how bad the traffic is. That's a simple problem to solve. So we need public ownership there. And then the, the unique thing about our Green New Deal is if we're gonna build, see, electric power is only 28% of our carbon footprint, our greenhouse gas emissions. We gotta transform transportation, buildings, manufacturing, and agriculture. And none of these Green New Deals the Democrats are proliferating deals with that on an emergency basis. They say we can get that done by 2050. That's too late because that's 72 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions. So we're talking about doing what we did during World War II, where the federal government took over a quarter of manufacturing or they built the manufacturing themselves and planted from the center so we could turn industry on a dime into what they called the arsenal of democracy to defeat the fascist powers because it was an emergency. We got a climate emergency. We need to do nothing less now. So we want to build, rebuild American manufacturing. We don't have a machine tool industry. You need that if you're going to have intermediate machinery for intermediate goods and uh, consumer manufacturing machinery for consumer goods. Who's going to build these wind generators and these electric heat pumps and the uh, solar panels? I mean, if we spend a lot of money on this, we're going to be buying it from China and Germany because we don't have that industry. So we want to, through the federal uh, government, build these three industries out. Power, transportation, and manufacturing. And that's how we can, you know, very quickly make this transition to zero gas emissions and 100% and clean power across all sectors, not just electric power generation. That's our Green New Deal. It makes it unique. And I think, uh, having been the original Green New Deal, I hope I can get into debate with these, you know, major party candidates on the major media and we can talk about what so. we really need to do because the other candidates are not, you know, it's, the, Bernie Sanders is halfway there. He's got a 2050 timeline. He's spending about half as much as we are over 10 years. But he's brought in policies like the ones I said had been diluted before. The other Democrats are just not serious. They're talking one to three trillion over 10 years. And then that's for subsidies and tax incentives and mandates. Well, the powers that be are going to resist those and gum up the works. These are not serious programs to deal with an emergency like the climate crisis. So anyway, that's one of, the, that's one of our centerpieces of our campaign. And, and in that Green New Deal, you do talk about the Economic Bill of Rights and a Green Economy Reconstruction Program. Is that what Yeah, that is? I was just talking about the Green Economy Reconstruction Program. That's half the Green New Deal. The other half is to deal with the other life and death issue that we face, and that's inequality. Inequality kills. The life expectancy gap now between our richest and poorest counties is 20 years. If you break it down by uh, census tracts, it's even more extreme. 
that is the height of immorality, inexcusable. People are dying because they can't afford to get medicines. The man that lived downstairs from me died this spring. He's on Medicaid, and he's more worried about paying his rent and utilities than buying the kidney medicine he needed, and his kidneys failed because he was poor. And it was inexcusable. It was a very easily solved problem. And that's happening all over the country. So that's what the Economic Bill of Rights is about. Everybody should, who's willing and able to work should have a job with the government as employer last resort. We should end poverty immediately by building into the tax structure a negative income tax. In other words, if you fill out your tax form and you're below the poverty level, then the government sends you a check every month to bring you up to above the poverty level. And we just end poverty right away. Affordable housing. We need to do public housing because it's the cheapest way to build affordable units and do it the right way. Not segregated, but you know, mix people up by economic class, make the developments human scale. There'll be clean energy uh, developments. It'll be a clean energy program, a jobs program, as well as an affordable housing program. Comprehensive health care for everybody. That's Medicare for all, um, publicly financed health care. Uh, a quality education from pre-K through college and public institutions. And finally, a secure retirement, which we're saying what we should do is double Social Security benefits. The baby boomers worked, they raised their kids, wages stagnated, and healthcare, housing, college inflated enormously, and they don't have savings. Um, so we believe we should just double Social Security and make that a real old age pension that people can live on. One of the, the that's things, the economic bill of rights. The, yeah, no, I, I think it's great. I, obviously, I support it. Um, what do you mean by the term eco-socialist? Well, traditionally, socialism meant social ownership and democratic administration of the major means of production. And we say eco-socialist today because the old socialists were really about increasing production, the forces of production, because we had to end poverty. We're so productive now. All the poverty problem is is a matter of proper distribution. The problem now is producing within ecological limits. So that's why we say eco-socialism. Yeah, that's great. Um, one of the uh, is to kind of give you a little bit of the dirty laundry that's happening here in, in New Orleans. We have a city council uh, members are, makes up seven city council members here in the in the city. All of them are Democrats. This is a strong Democratic city. Uh, yet one of the proposals uh, that they have passed in that that a lot of activists have been blocking is that the uh, local company here's Entergy is our is our local uh, 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 energy producer and they are trying to build a plant out in New Orleans East a brand new brand new plant that they're calling it a Peking plant uh, the problems with uh, with power outages that we have here uh, are due to poor infrastructure they're not due to not enough power uh, but we we all know that if they, if they dig something into the ground and build a plant, that's 50 years of an investment that they're going to need to, to, to recoup on. And all seven of our city council members voted in favor of it. Uh, and whenever they're on air with me, I always ask them about the vote. And it's, it, it's funny to watch them squirm a little bit. I usually wait until the end to, 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 to ask them about it. But they've never really given a good answer. And, uh, and quite frankly, I think it's embarrassing and shameful. So it's going to be fueled by gas? Yeah. Um, look, the Democratic Party has made a suicide pact for all of us. You remember Christine Pelosi, the Speaker's daughter, got a resolution passed June of 2018 saying we won't take money from the fossil fuel industry. And then the adults, quote, unquote, in the room found out, what, what did we do? So in August they said, oh, yes, we're going to take that money 
and we are recommitting to an all-of-the-above energy strategy, which was Obama's. And what that means in practice is we're going to frack the hell out of the country for oil and gas, go all out on fossil fuels, and we're going to subsidize failing nuclear power plants. And that's what's going on now. And that is a climate catastrophe in the making. So, you know, I really get angry when I hear people say, oh, Trump, he doesn't believe in climate change. We need the Democrats. The Democrats act like there's no climate crisis because they're bought and paid for by the fossil industry. They're saying, give us your money and we're going to build all these gas fire plants, gas pipelines. We're going to let you frack everywhere. Um, you know, it's like if you want a solution to the climate crisis, we got to, that's what the Green Party is here for. We, we're serious about that. The Democrats are not. Now, I don't know your council people, but I expect, like we've seen in New York with our state legislatures, that the uh, fossil fuel industry is giving them a lot of money. That's what I suspect as well. Yeah, but well, it's you, easy to find out. You, look, you know, there's public campaign finance records, unless they're, uh, you know, breaking those laws, too. No, I, I, I don't know about that. But I, I will say that New York State did ban fracking. Yeah, I got 5% of the vote running for governor. Governor Cuomo wanted to roll up the vote, get ready to run for president. He wanted to get more votes than his father, Mario, had got. He wanted to get more votes than he got in 2010, and he got less. And he looked around, and I'm sitting there with 5% of the vote, so he had to see, what was I talking about? He knew. A ban on fracking, paid family leave, $15 minimum wage, tuition-free public higher education, and he made moves on all of those. So now the problem, like I said before, is the Democrats will take the brand and dilute the content. So we got a ban on fracking in New York, but he's doubled down on importing frack gas from neighboring Ohio and Pennsylvania, and they're building pipelines to bring it in. And so there's a huge gas-fired plant that we've been fighting in the Hudson Valley, Competitive Power Ventures, and Cuomo's campaign manager, a young man younger than Mario that they called the brother from another mother, he's very close to the family, Joe Prococo, took a bribe from uh, Peter Galbraith Kelly Jr. Peter Galbraith Kelly Sr. was the uh, finance director and treasurer of the Democratic National Committee. He worked with Ronald Reagan to set up the National Endowment for Democracy, bipartisan, basically kind of public diplomacy with the CIA messing with it uh, to intervene in other people's elections. Um, that's, so they got convicted on that bribery. I remember that. Okay, the plant got built anyway. You know, the bribery was to grease the regulatory wheels. And then they started spewing out oil backup, gas, people getting sick. They go to court, and some hack judge says, well, we'll let you keep burning because you'll get the paperwork done eventually, you know, in six months. I mean, it's so corrupt. So that's what we say. You know, the Democrats, if we get a good vote, they'll make some moves, but we got to watch them because uh, they'll do the symbolic thing, but in the end, corporate power structures who they really listen to. And to give you an example of that, uh, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the failed uh, presidential candidates, uh, 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 former Governor Hickenlooper, who's now running as a Senate in the Senate in uh, Colorado, actually there's that famous picture of him drinking fracking water, saying that uh, this is all fine. I mean, th this, is, this is the guy who's likely to win a Senate seat, uh, and who's a Democrat who's yeah. drinking fracking water trying to pass on that this is okay. Well, I've heard about him because my campaign manager, Andrea Mayer, is from Colorado, and she says they call him fracking looper. I call him fraud and looper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio, and we are broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel. Give it up, y'all. Thank you guys so much. This is Resistance Radio, and it's such an honor and pleasure to uh, have on uh, the uh, uh, one of the primary candidates uh, for the Green Party ticket, and that's Mr. Howie Hawkins. Uh, so... As we move into Medicare for All, I'm a doctor, so I just wanted to save this one for the, the last part because there's lots of uh, great um, uh, topics here. So we have a, a gubernatorial race here in Louisiana where one candidate wants to keep Medicaid expanded. He, in fact, he ran on expanding Medicaid. That's uh, Governor John Bell Edwards. He said he would expand Medicaid on the first day, and he actually did, and we're now one of two states that have expanded Medicaid. Arkansas, to the north of us, also has expanded Medicaid. The other uh, wants to essentially uh, kick, he wants to actually completely eliminate that Medicaid expansion. So we expanded Medicaid and we enrolled 500,000 people almost overnight to the Medicaid. Uh, My patient population, I'm an HIV doctor, I I see exclusively underinsured, uninsured and or Medicaid population. So I all of a sudden had a bunch of new patients that were available to see me for hep C and HIV and these other things. But there is a study by the Koch brothers, uh, of course, I'm talking about the Mercatus Center, that show that Medicare for All would save $2 trillion over a 10-year period. And forget about the international embarrassment that we refuse to offer free health care like the rest of the world, and that our care is twice as much as the rest of the world's because that extra 50% is obviously taken for profit. So how would you consider uh, getting Medicare for All passed in your administration, and what would that look like for you? Well, we start with the principle that health care should be a human right as part of our economic bill of rights, not a buy or die commodity. It's inexcusable that people are dying because they can't pay for sometimes pretty inexpensive treatments. We got drug companies, you know, gouging people for insulin or that Screlly kid that was, you know, jacking up, you know, medicine. That was, this- an, a- that was an HIV medicine. Yeah. That was to treat toxoplasmosis, which infects the brain. Yeah, people like that should not be anywhere near the healthcare system because they are totally callous and immoral. Um, so now, how do we deliver this? Like most countries do, it's a public service. Um, sometimes it's just public insurance. Back to the '70s when we were debating the Nixon bill, which is basically what Obamacare is, the Kennedy bill, which is national health insurance, what we call Medicare for all, and the Dallas bill, which were was for a national health service like they have in the UK and Denmark, Costa Rica, Cuba, some other countries where the hospitals and clinics are mostly public and the doctors work for salary. We called the Kennedy bill back in those days the great leap sideways because we were worried about cost control and it was not as bad as it is today in terms of healthcare cost inflation because the income maximizing providers, hospitals, doctors, clinics, uh, would multiply fees for service which if they're on salary, doesn't increase their income. And the drug companies would be feeding at that trough, trying to get as much as they could. So a health service, the other thing about the health service is we would have elected boards, local health districts elected two-thirds by the public, the consumers, and one-third by the healthcare workers who have the expertise. And then they would administer what goes on in an area, make sure every neighborhood's got a clinic that we're not putting, like now, you know, the hospitals are competing for patients, so. Some have too many MRIs and the others don't. Uh, we have a good distribution of resources. Uh, doctors, we could allocate uh, healthcare education funding so we could have 
doctors graduating without this big debt, so they have to go into a specialty to pay off the debt when they really would like to do, you know, general practitioner. Um, so it would be under community control. So we call it a community-based national health service. It's single payer, which means basically it's publicly funded by the government. And so that's the kind of system we're looking at. It would cover all medically necessary services, uh, including dental, health, hearing, long-term care, mental health, uh, as well as, you know, the different kind of infectious diseases and injuries that we would uh, cover. So, uh, and it would be free at the point of delivery. You know, you pay taxes for it. You don't pay premiums, co-pays, deductibles, and out-of-pocket, you know, for the things that are not covered. I'm on Medicare now, but there are a lot of things not covered. Um, so, you know, I got a little foot problem. I called a keratoma. I got hematose, so I got this hard callus, right? 80 bucks for a doctor to take like two seconds with a scalpel to flatten it out so I don't feel like I'm walking on a pebble. And uh, so, you know, do I want to pay $80 or do I want to take my nail clipper and kind of give a hardcore to it? I mean, people are making those kind of decisions instead of going down to the neighborhood clinic and, you know, in five minutes having the problem fixed for a few weeks. Um, so that's the kind of thing that, you know, we can do much better in the delivery of healthcare. And then the other thing I want to say is, you know, every time this gets debated in the Democratic primaries, the commentators from CNN or whoever asked the industry question, is this going to increase middle class taxes? Well, obviously a little bit because it's publicly funded, but overall you're going to spend less. And the thing they don't point out, because the other candidates besides Warren and Sanders are saying, oh, we want you to be able to keep your private insurance and public option for Medicare. And what needs to be said and hasn't been said in those debates is your damn public option costs an arm and a leg more because you're keeping all these multiple insurers, which means you need this big bureaucracy to figure out if this patient with this coverage is covered for the service. And then you've got to call them up and see if they'll cover it before you deliver the service. And we know those private insurance companies reject uh, payment just as a matter of principle to lower their costs because the more they can lower they pay out, the more profits they get. It's a totally immoral and irrational and inefficient system. So those public option Democrats that say you're, you're giving you a choice, they make it sound like you get to choose your doctor. That's another thing. When we talk about Medicare for all, whether it's a health service or insurance program, you get to choose your doctor. You know, that's not an issue. You know, and the idea that people love their private health insurance, I don't think they've had private health insurance. I mean, man, oh, man. So I, I'm just disappointed that they didn't point out the public option costs more. Yeah, I, I think with they're trying to do is they're trying to get either Senator Sanders or uh, Senator Warren uh, on camera to say that their taxes are going to go up, and then they're going to use that to hammer, hammer, hammer. They spent 20 minutes in the last debate just just trying to get her to say that taxes are going to go up. I mean, it's a trick. I mean, it's obvious. We know it's what's a trick, going on. And she and, fell for it because yeah. she wouldn't say it. She should have said, yeah, your taxes go up, but your overall costs go down. That, All she would say is your overall costs go down, and people thought she was avoiding the issue. Bernie did face it, and I think he was pretty effective. The thing they should have added is your damn public option costs more. Right. Yeah, and that you get, you, you know, they're not, they do not, they frame the question the way the industry wants to frame it. Exactly. Just like yeah. you said. And, and I feel as though that in the last couple debates that Senator Warren and Senator Sanders have not taken the opportunity to frame it from more of a socialist perspective or, uh, or more from a perspective of it being a public good and a human right and that this is, uh, uh, this is what the rest of the world can do. And if the rest of the world can do it and they can do it better, then why the hell can't we do it? 
My debating tactic would not be to be defensive, go on the offense. Your public auction costs more. You know, I, if they're listening, use it. Next time it's going to come up again. Um, if just, you won't, I will. I, uh, I just wanted to, we have a couple more minutes. I have a couple more things I just wanted to say. State of Louisiana has the highest rates of HIV because we have the highest rates of social determinants of health. That includes poverty, homelessness, other sexually transmitted infections, illiteracy, incarceration. My wife and I have fought repeatedly to try to get comprehensive sexuality education in the state. They refuse to actually do that. And remember, poverty is just really discrimination codified into law. And we spent the last hour talking about the most obvious fixes. Uh, to me, this almost begins to seem like that some of these things are just done intentionally, right? I mean, it just seems as though that there is something to gain by having a rich... constantly bickering amongst themselves over religion, over abortion, over gun rights, over LGBT type of stuff. I, I, I just wanted your thoughts about that and, and, and whether you think that's too far of a reach to make. Well, I think we need a left in this country that knows how to organize. I mean, we mobilize the usual suspects to protest this and protest that, but it's the same people. We need to have, you know, systematic organization across uh, the racial barriers uh, the occupational barriers, the geographic barriers. I mean, we're more segregated now than we were before World War II. And because of urban sprawl, we're more physically separate. So one of the most dangerous things about segregation is uh, white enclaves where, where myths about other people, immigrants, Muslims, black people, brown people, Latinos, fester and grow. And, you know, then the sphere grows. And, that's not with white people that are in a more mixed cosmopolitan kind of situation. That's a danger. So how do we have an organization, a party of the left, like the Green Party, like the Socialist Party? There's some independent left parties at the state level that we're going to seek their ballot lines too. How do we go out and organize systematically and bring people together so they're talking to each other face to face? We were just at Politicon, right? And we had a booth and, you know, I was on some little interviews here and there and you know, uh, you know, little podcast. Um, and Trump people would come up, right? And you think, oh, Lord, here we go. But, you know, when you get beyond the labels and you begin talking about practical problems, you know, we could talk like human beings. And I think we need a party that organizes its grassroots like that, brings people together so they can deal with each other face to face. Because all we're getting from the Democrats and Republicans is tit for tat, zero sum game, where, you know, my gain is your loss and it's all negative. And it's not about solving problems. It's about basically discouraging the other side from voting. And we may lose some voters because we're so nasty too, but they'll lose more. That's what happens with negative campaigning. We need a whole new politics. And, you know, that's one of the major goals of my campaign is to the grassroots party of the people that knows how to organize. And I 100% agree. We have one minute left. I have one more question for you. Your, uh, the person that you're running against in the primary, his name is Darren Hunter. My understanding is that he's a black Muslim who converted to Judaism, who is now a rabbi and is also gay. Is there any consideration of, of either one of you running a ticket together? Because I think that's a winning ticket. There, I don't, there's not been active consideration. Um, completely rule it out. Um, I'm talking with all kinds of folks about, you know, who I might choose as a running mate. That's a decision made a long time, a long time from now next summer. Um, so, but I wouldn't rule it out completely. 
I hope you come back to New Orleans. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Howie Hawkins, what a pleasure.